Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. There is a place where time stands still. Where nature is harsh and demanding. Where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. I Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Showreel, a 3CR's look at uh, the... Uh, Australian film industry and today we've got a bit of a treat for you because I did a long conversation interview with uh, C.S. McMullen and her father Sean McMullen. Now Sean McMullen is a science fiction writer, a novelist, uh, very successful and uh, his daughter Catherine S. McMullen is a science fiction horror script writer and uh, they give you uh, a little bit of an understanding of what it's like to be uh, successful at their craft and what it takes to actually be successful in their craft. Now before we do I have to remind you that uh, Radiothon is afoot it's going to be uh, third, it starts off on the third and runs for that two weeks the third to the 16th of June uh, one week is going to be for the language programs and one week is going to be for the general programs. Then, of course, Showreel is part of the general uh, landscape. So uh, if you enjoy this program, then make sure that you uh, ring in on our uh, Radiothon Day and uh, tell us because it's always nice to uh, be praised or to even know that there's at least one man and his dog that's listening to what you've got to share. Anyway... Uh, let's move on because I've got. Uh, we're going to uh, play this uh, interview over two weeks because it was a long, extended interview. Uh, but it's uh, and it's fascinating to hear about uh, the life of people who involve themselves. I think in uh, the craft of writing. So let's go. Thanks for coming in. Uh, in the studio, we've got Sean McMullen, science fiction writer, and uh, his daughter. Catherine S. McMullen, who's a scriptwriter with uh, the genre uh, science fiction being your major shtick. That's yeah, correct, isn't it? Science fiction and horror. So, but yeah, definitely just genre generally. Okay, yeah. and uh, I was uh, seeing that you've just come back from uh, Ireland. Uh, yeah. You've been in the midst of a, a major shoot. Yeah, yeah. So my first feature film um, called The Other Lamb uh, was shooting in Ireland for five weeks. Uh, and then I, I was there for part of the shoot and then I went to New York for um, a script lab for a, a different script with a, my co-writer Gemma Crofts and then I was just in LA for a little bit as well. So I think I literally went round the world physically. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that particular script has got a, a journey, hasn't it? You were yeah. chosen from 
Explain to listeners what that was all about. Yeah, so it um it came from uh, an idea I'd had for a little while, and then uh, ended up writing as a short story that got published in an Australian genre magazine called Orialis. And you know, it did relatively well. Um, I kind of was pretty happy with the response, but put it aside and thought, great, I've kind of got that out. Um, and it had been really uh, something that. Yeah, I'd been obsessed with for a number of years, which was cults and kind of this strange occurrence in the middle of the desert. Um, and, and all came from me reading about Lake Eyre, which um, floods every 10 years. And, and then um, when it leaves, you know, all the wildlife that was there dies. So it was this really evocative image that I wanted to do something with. And then I was thinking about ideas for features. And it's, it's not often that I come back to an idea, but I kind of realised that I still had something more to tell than I had done in the short story. So you wrote a short story, and was that because, one, you can just write and you don't need to have lots of money to da-da-da-da, but was it influenced by your father's writing? Yeah, yeah, it it definitely was. I mean, for me, um, I started out writing short stories and then started writing scripts, so I had maybe um, four to five short stories published in recent years, as well as some when I was younger, um, and then and then I moved to script writing. So I haven't really done short stories since script writing. It kind of went for me short stories and then scripts. Um, the really common uh, journey for a lot of science fiction writers is that they start out writing short stories and then they do their first novel, um, which I still would like to do one day. But at the moment, scripts are doing pretty well. Um, and, and Sean, you you've written twenty five. Novels, uh, yes, and ninety-six uh, published stories as well. Almost at the hundred, <laughs> and I probably should add as well because of my daughter's uh, modesty that she was ten years old when oh she God. sold her first story in Britain, and uh, she was fifteen when she won her first award for directing a film called Rollerboy. As I, mm, a classic that is <laughs> thankfully lost to the mists of time. <laughs> so she's been at it quite a while, and she was. You know, she started very, very early. Yeah, that's right. So a prodigy writer. Uh, this is really quite interesting. Uh, before we go on to working about the differences between writing for short story and why you decided rather than a novel you'd go to film, yeah. uh, you, Sean, have written a uh, co-written a critical history of Australian science fiction uh, around Australian film. You know, it's 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 an investigation in science fiction on the screen in Australia, correct? I, I wrote um, with Van Eiken and Russell Blackford um, Strange Constellations, which was the first history of Australian science fiction, and then I updated that a bit um, in a recent collection that I published, uh, uh, which was um, Dreams of the Technarian, and that updated the last 20 years and it shows very radical things like the, the, the female content going from, um, in, in awards, for example, going from like a 1 in 10 to 9 out of 10 and sort of other factors like that, um, changing the, basically chronicling the demographics of the way the field's been changing and, um, you know, basically you know, sexual and even racial equality is um, actually being achieved on quite a large scale. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it? That but I don't know why, but apparently science fiction is supposed to be uh, the poor, poor bedfellow or the uh, not so uh, important genre within uh, literature and uh, filmmaking and stuff mm. like that. You know, that and, and yet we often lead the way in terms of you know 
women writers, writers of colour, or you know, we we are, I would say kind of ten to fifteen years ahead of the literary establishment a lot of the time. I um, mean, I think it's because we're kind of already on the margins in terms of a genre, so you know, you don't have as many. You know, there are still definitely barriers within the genre, and you know, an idea that I, I still have to when I go into meetings kind of establish myself as no my dad's a science fiction writer I've always loved genre this isn't just I've just started being interested in it and that would be a bit different if I was a guy that's that's still there a little bit unfortunately but I think in general where we move a lot quicker than kind of the establishment so uh why did you Sean why did you decide to write science fiction I like the ideas initially and there was a William Tenn story from, I think, the 1950s called Time in Advance, which was one of the many short stories that influenced me and said, wow, I want to tell stories like that. And it was a chap who goes off to some hideously dangerous colony worlds, serves a sentence for murder, and then he comes back with a certificate to commit one murder. <laughs> and I thought, wow, isn't that absolutely wonderful? I mean, the idea at least. <laughs> and everybody is suddenly being terribly nice to him. <laughs> Basically, ideas. I mean, certainly the characters were there. Um, and you can get that in fantasy as well. It's not just confined to, to, to science fiction, but other why, people... Why do you think genre is so is seen in such contempt? Because of its historic background. It, we're, we're still living with the legacy of the 1950s where it was rocket ships and computers that are basically huge electronic brains that are going to take over things. Boys, boys own in space was mm. what it was for not, not all the time, but it was the majority of it for a long time as well, I think. But the key to science fiction is um, impact of change on individuals. Back in the 70s, I think it was, somebody wrote a story about a little organiser that got more and more and more and more complex until it was basically an iPhone. Yeah. Um, and this is like 30, 40 years before an iPhone and the things became intelligent and flew off into space and left humanity to <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to to cope without their very addictive iPhones. But the point is that was extremely prophetic and it shows that humans really can become addicted to convenience technology like that. And that's just one of many, many um, things that science fiction can actually not, not sort of predict but um, say well this is a scenario and humans are liable to do this this and this or this will be the consequence and I think with nuclear war um, Neville Shute um, modelled the whole idea of uh, Melbourne being the last little outpost that's still alive with nuclear war and with with my um, one of one of my stories that was published in, in 2009 was it the precedent, which I've, I've since expanded into a novel that's now on submission and a script. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, everybody who was born before the year 2000 gets put, so put on trial and, generally speaking, executed for climate crimes by the new generation <laughs> because the world has been so badly screwed. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, um, well, you know, why are you... I'm, I'm, I'm quite attracted by the one about the psychopathic librarians. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Sounds like a great machine. Yeah, great winter yeah. series. Yeah, yeah, great, great idea. And uh, a great title, Souls in the Great Machine. Mm. Fantastic. That's the library computer made of 2,000 um, people with Abacus speeds calculating slaves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, mm. I mean, I think, you know... 
It's really interesting with sci-fi. One of the things that I always emphasise when I'm talking about my scripts or when I'm meeting with people or anything like that is that, you know, a good idea is really important. You know, people can get very possessive, especially newer writers of their ideas and worried about people stealing them. But I, I have lots of ideas. I have lots of concepts. The characters are what make you care about it. And its impact on humanity is what makes science fiction interesting to me. And, you know, science fiction at its core is humans will always be humans. Even if they're robots, they'll always be humans. And how does that, you know, how will humanity change through technology? Um, And what things, you know, seem really obvious to you, but when you present them through a different lens, you go, oh, wait, okay, maybe that's a bit different. You know, um, it's very simplistic, but, you know, worlds being invaded is obviously often an allegory for countries being invaded. But sometimes it's easier for people to read about it in a fictional setting and then understand some of the issues than it is, you know, if you went and read a nonfiction book. And you kind of have these barriers up when it's, you know, something that's really happening. Like I, in many ways, got more of a sense of understanding about, you know, Australian colonialism after reading Tomorrow When the War Began, which is very clearly science fiction and, you know, kind of shows an alternate world in which Australia is invaded. But so many of the things in it suddenly, I mean, it's, I was very young when I read it, but it's something I keep on coming back to and going like, I oh, just repositioned how I thought about an issue. Yeah, uh, as in how would you feel if you were invaded? Exactly, exactly. And it sounds so simple and so obvious, but it's not something that, you know, white Australians have to think about. And it's something that Aboriginal Australians think about every day. Very few people would live their lives without narrative or story in some way, even if, you know, it's interesting, the only time I'm ever really interested in sport is when there's an interesting story there. And, and you know, it's pretty rare, but it does it does happen. And, you know, I think people... Oh, even people, the structure of sport. Yeah, yeah. The games know, themselves, yeah. the actual games. Not, not, I don't mean watching people play it, but the actual structure behind it. Yeah. It's like acts and, you know, things happen and there are characters and there are villains and all of those things. So I think, you know, most people live their life with some form of narrative in it and it's just about finding out the one that connects with you and and for me and, you know, it's impossible to separate from my upbringing but it's always been genre and that's the stories I want to tell as well which in Australia can be a little bit hard because we just have a smaller market Um, but, you know, thankfully I've managed to also find work in America. So... Tune in to On Screen and find out more about what's on the big and the small screen each Saturday, 11am till 12 noon on 3CR. It's a program on film, on filmmakers and on film festivals. It's called On Screen, Mm, but it's on the radio, 3CR. on Showreel with Annie on 3CR and uh, we're listening to a conversation I had with Catherine S. McMullen, science fiction horror scriptwriter and Sean McMullen, science fiction writer, her father. Now, uh, this is part one. We're going to have part two next week. We'll go on quickly because uh, it was a very interesting conversation with people who are actively and successfully uh, wielding their craft of writing. The um, film that you've just been uh, writing and uh, shooting in Ireland, you went through a process where this this film script was considered to be 
what is what are the names of it? It's I oh, said so the, the blacklist, the, the blacklist, the bloodlist, yeah. and the hit list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Explain those things. Yeah, so um, how it works is you you write a script, um, and you have two kinds of scripts. You have what's called a spec script, which is where you write it literally speculatively for free. Um, and then you have scripts that are on assignments. You know, someone has a book or a, an article and then they pay you money to write it. Um, so the other line was a spec script because that tends to be what you do when you're kind of an emerging writer or starting out. Um, and because, like actors, writers like to write. Yeah, exactly. I that, knew that. That's the thing. Whenever I have friends that have a script or two and then they, they've just sat on them for a few years, I'm kind of like, well... Even if no one was reading them, I'd probably still be writing, you know. Yeah, so I'd written this script. Uh, it, it was all set in Australia. Uh, I had gotten some US managers kind of related to the script. They'd read a couple of other samples. We'd been introduced through friends. Like the classic thing where it had kind of um, hit a point where I had enough connections and I had I had uh, three or four different samples of some pilots and some features. Um, and then uh, I went to the States and started doing what's called generals, which is where you just go into a room, you meet with someone, you have a chat for 45 minutes and you leave. And you do, you know, I did 50 of them on that first trip. Um, and and it's, you have 50 conversations. Yeah, and it's it's a little bit like a job interview, but not quite. Like it's basically, you know... And are you, these from um, writers' groups or are they... Uh, uh, they're, they're generally production companies, pro- yes, production um, companies. distribution companies, producers, yeah. sometimes other writers. And that um, tells you how big America is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you could meet more people in a month there than I could meet here in a year or two. I mean, that's not that's not bagging Australia. We're just a smaller industry in a smaller country. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And yeah. in actual fact, there's good points about that. Yeah, too. exactly. I, you, you know lots of people here, you know, um, and, and if you know one person in the industry here, you're probably connected to most of it. Um, so, yeah, I um, so I started doing meetings and you don't tend to pitch in those meetings. They're much more about basically making friends, making connections, telling people what you're about. And then two years down the track, they might get a sci-fi story in and think, oh, that, that person Catherine I met a while ago would be great. Um, so it's very much, you know, you're laying the seeds. And then on that first trip, I met a development executive called Stephanie Wilcox, who works for Rumble, which is the company that ended up optioning it. And she kind of walked in and I thought it was just a general. And she said, um, yeah, I love the script. Is it available? And I was like, I was not prepared. I did not think anyone would want to buy my very weird cult horror sheep based script. I love said, the sheep. Exactly. Yeah, it's very, very it's not mainstream. New Zealand. Um, yeah. And Australia, New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. And so from there, so that actually happened before it got on all the So lists. did they pay you money? Yeah, so they they optioned it. So they, they paid me money for the option. Was it a living wage? Uh, no, options don't tend to be that. They can be once you're very, very high up, but yeah. options are the right to make it. When you make it, you get a bigger sum of money, but mm. um, options don't tend to be... No, no, it's yeah. a put in the door, literally. Yeah. In, in Australia especially, options are sometimes a dollar. Yeah, so so that that was actually optioned before it got onto all the lists, but then what happened was it kept on being sent around as a sample and I kept on meeting with people and from there, so the blacklist gets voted on by executives. It's basically a list of what scripts did you read this year that you loved? Um, and there is a certain amount of lobbying that goes on, which people don't always talk about, but, you know, in the sense of like most scripts on that list, almost everyone would have a manager or an agent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Business um, is business is yeah, business. Yeah. And and um, and it's very rare to get on the list without a manager or oh, agent. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, the thing is that you could be given the thousands of scripts to read. Exactly. And it and has to be weeded. Most producers will only read things that come to them through a manager or an agent just as a sheer 
culling mechanism. Not yeah. not always, but generally. Um, and it doesn't mean that the stuff that's out there couldn't be fantastic. Yeah, actually, yeah. they just have to find a way to get that and thousand scripts down to fifty. You know? Yeah, but um, also you're giving the tip to the people who are out there who are writing that this is the method that needs to be. This there's another ladder. There's a type of ladder that you have to yeah. climb. And and you know I now I have the manager. It's it's great, but I got that manager by being in competitions and shortlisting and things and winning things and all of that stuff. So, you know, it is that thing where it's it's not impossible. It just takes work. Um, and, oh, and also it's not a bad thing yeah. to have a, a, a father who writes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and writes can introduce you to people that are uh, interesting people. Yeah. I yeah, think definitely. there's, <coughs> excuse me, an elephant in the room which we really need to mention and that is um, Catherine spent about five years in production Mm. as opposed to writing, yeah, and she that. got to learn the industry incredibly well. She worked for Matchbox and a couple of other smallish companies and then went outside the tent, the way they is, is the term, and worked on other other Worked on shows, shows like, as a freelancer. Yep. Uh, Childhood Zender, for example. The Leftovers, uh, Hunters, all the uh, US shows I could, yeah. Thing, things like that. and um, So you plotted your course. Oh, yeah. I got a lot of people coffee. Like that's that's the thing. And I was always writing when I had downtime. But I absolutely – like production hours, for anyone that doesn't know, are, are brutal. Like you you start on a 50-hour week. You sometimes go up to a 60, sometimes beyond. But incredibly exciting. Yeah. I mean it's a job. <laughs> like, no, no, no. It's a job. It's, but it's, it, it is very It's exciting. a world. It is a world. And, and you work very hard for six weeks and then suddenly you're unemployed Nothing. again. Yeah. Um, but as a result, I did have connections and people I knew and things so that when I started but, to but, scripts, but not only that, you actually understood what it was you were doing. Yeah, definitely. Because films are a cooperative affair. Yeah. And, and you know, the example I always use is, you know, you write a scene, 200 people cheer, whatever. That's fine. You, you know, you have to know what movie you're writing and if you're making a $3 million film versus a $20 million film and which one will get made and all of that. But if you're going to write a scene, be deliberate about it because that scene could be most of your budget if you – that's all the extras, that's all costume, that's all this, that's all that. You might be able to do that with five people. You know, you have to look at what a scene needs and why. And and sometimes a scene needs 200 people. But if you're trying to make a $3 million horror film that can get made in Australia for, you know, with – Australian production company, then you're not going to write a crowd scene. So it's just it's stuff like that where it's like it's not about restricting; it's about being realistic. And I read a lot of scripts that unwittingly are unrealistic. Like it's you know, and I, and I, I have written those scripts as well to be very clear. Um, but then you go, you know, I I just took a car crash out of a script because I was asked to take it out, but also I found a cleverer way that was actually more interesting visually that when you look at it on the page actually costs less money and I'm happier with that scene. So, you know, it's a constant process of relearning how to do things in the right way and working in production, I think, for screenwriters is a lot more important. Whereas for novelists, it's kind of like saying you have to go work in publishing. I I don't think you have to go work in publishing to be a novelist. No, no, that's what I was saying before. You can put anything you like in it. Yeah, yeah. I've just been reading the Fango series and they're Zeppelins. Yep, yep. And they explode. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Couldn't write that in a script. No. It's quite um, important, though, if you're. This is more 
message for your um, audience, I suppose. Catherine's brilliant at computers. I like to think she got it from me. But um, there <laughs> I was did always win the computer the, award in school, so the, I'm the, very nerdy. <laughs> yes, there was Catherine and 14 boys and then the next girl um, in that particular class. But the, um, the important thing is people will really, really want to keep you working in things that you do extremely well when you get into production or whatever. And it's very important to resist that if you really want to be writing scripts. You have to focus. Yeah. Yes, you, you have to keep on, why am I in this? Am, am I in this to fix the, the director's computer or am yeah. I in this to try and sell my script? So. Yeah. I could have stayed in production and kept on working my way up the chain. And I, and look, there are aspects of it. I love it. I love working in a team. I love it being fast-paced. I do love – I love working in TV. Uh, and you'll get paid. Yeah, exactly. You get paid. You in get a, paid on time a, every week. That um, sort of thing, yeah. But – which is definitely not looking down on because it was very nice. Um, but at the same time, yeah, Dad's absolutely right. You can get trapped in something that you're really good at. And I – you know, it was – pretty good at being – I mean, I wasn't the best production secretary, secretary ever, but I, I am good at – Well, you're good at organising. You know, exactly. And, but and that's seeing not ahead. Yeah, yeah. And, and so at one stage I basically pulled myself out of production and said this year I'm going to write and I'm going to do writer's rooms as an assistant and I'm not accepting any production gigs because if I do, I'll put my head up in 10 years and I won't have written scripts and I won't have done what I wanted to do. And did you have um, that conversation with your dad? Was that something – did you get support from each other? Um, I do remember supporting that particular decision because not wanting to drop names, but back in 2003, Terry Pratchett said to me, listen, you've got to drop out of scientific computing and write full time because – you're always going to be working with a hand tied behind your back if you're um, if you're an amateur writer and you said you're good enough to is, is pull it, it off. And then is it fear when of it, flying? Sorry, is it fear of flying? Something like that, I suppose. Um, it's, it's, but fear of the unknown. And then when Catherine got to the same decision, I said, "Well, don't make the same mistake as me. Um, throw yourself into it, and at least see if you can make a go of it." And as it happened, she was more than good enough to make a go of it. And I think also, like, not to be too blunt, but there are certain economic realities um, which are dramatically different between screenwriting and novel writing. So most novel writers, like Dad and I know a lot of novel writers in Australia, I would say the vast majority of them have either a part-time or a full-time job. And that is just – and these are even quite successful ones. And the ones that don't – kind of manage to get like, you know, a big chunk of their income would be like school talks or, you know, a little bit of tutoring or like there's other things that fit around their writing. But even, you know, people that have won very, very high level international awards still write work as technical writers three days a week. And that's that's not that's not saying that you know, they might well, get other things useful, out of it. Actually. Exactly. Mm. Um they, they absolutely might get other things out of it, but it's also just to a certain extent an economic reality of novel writing. But then the the plus side of that is that you can write novels and short stories while having another job. The the difficulty with TV and especially TV, film less so, but especially TV, is that once you get to a certain point in it, you know, if I'm in a writer's room, it's really hard to take time off work if I had a full-time job. I, I you know, if I have to go overseas for something quickly, which sounds very glamorous, but it is work. If, if I had a full-time job, I would have to be taking leave at very short notice and it very quickly becomes... You can't have one foot in. No. You know, you, you have to be completely working as a TV writer, especially. Features, it's a little bit different. You probably could get away with doing, you know, another job a little bit. 
But with TV writing, you're either doing it and you're available when people ask if you're available for a writer's room or for a draft or whatever, or you're not. And uh, we'll leave it there. Coming up next is Published or Not. We're listening to a conversation I had with uh, Catherine S. McMullen and her father, Sean McMullen. Sean writes science fiction novels, quite successful, in fact, 25, published overseas. And Catherine writes film scripts in genre, uh, science fiction and horror. Uh, We're going to play the last part of that conversation next week, mainly because it's such a, a gripping sort of analysis of uh, uh, the daily life of a person who works in that field as a writer. Uh, I hope you're enjoying it as much as I did when I did the conversation. We're going to go out with Stay the Waves. It's a hint. Stay for the next program, published or not. You're on 3CR. Don't forget the Radiothon coming up at the beginning of June. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.